the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Maybe Robert Welsh was on to something. He was a businessman who founded the John Birch Society back in 1958. Now, here's what um, Wikipedia says about him. Uh, Robert Welsh was an American businessman, political organizer, and conspiracy theorist. He was wealthy following his retirement from the candy business, and he used his wealth to sponsor anti-communist causes. He co-founded the John Birch Society, an American right-wing political advocacy group, in 1958 and tightly controlled it until his death. Now, Wikipedia is ridiculously biased about everything and refers to just about every conservative who's ever lived as a conspiracy theorist of some kind. But even though I was only a kid, I mean, I was like 10, 12 years old, I remember that uh, people talking about being a member of the John Birch Society meant that most people considered you a raving lunatic. It was almost like being a member of the KKK. Um, he was an anti he was as anti-communist as it gets and um, he was considered a raving mani- maniac because of the warnings and predictions he made about communism. Now he lived to be 86 and he died in 1985. You don't hear much about the John Birch Society anymore, but I do remember hearing a lot about it uh, in the 60s. Uh, but a speech that Welsh gave back in 1958 again 66 years ago uh, has popped up on social media. I saw it, and I listened to it, and I was kind of amazed. Now, I don't have a guest for the first segment today, so I've been kind of looking for an opportunity to play this. Uh, Listen to what this guy said, Robert Welsh. See if you think he might not have been a raving uh, lunatic. There are three possible methods by which the communists might take us over. One would be by a peaceful coup d'etat, as in Czechoslovakia in 1948. The second method would be by fomenting civil war in this country and aiding the communist side with military might. But there is a third method, which they are clearly relying on most heavily. And this is taking us over by a process so gradual and insidious that communist rule is slipped over so far on the American people before they ever realize it is happening. The process in that direction is going on right now, gradually but surely, and with ever-increasing spread and speed. A part of that plan, of course, is to induce the gradual surrender of American sovereignty piece by piece and step by step to various international organizations of which the United Nations is the outstanding but far from the only example. But another part is the conversion of the United States into a socialist nation, quite similar to Russia itself in its economy and political outlook before police state enforcement is ever introduced. The best way to explain the aim here is simply to quote the directive under which some of the very largest American foundations have been secretly but visibly working for years. 
This directive is so to change the economic and political structure of the United States that it can be comfortably merged with Soviet Russia. Now, here are the communist aims for the United States. One, greatly expanded government spending for every conceivable means of getting rid of ever larger sums of American money as wastefully as possible. Two, higher and then much higher taxes. Three, an increasingly unbalanced budget despite the higher taxes. Four, wild inflation of our currency. Five, government controls of prices, wages, and materials supposedly to combat inflation. Six, greatly increased socialistic controls over every operation of our economy and every activity of our daily lives. This is to be accompanied naturally and automatically by a correspondingly huge increase in the size of our bureaucracy and in both the cost and reach of our domestic government. Seven, far more centralization of power in Washington and the practical elimination of our state lines. There is a many-faceted drive at work to have our state lines eventually mean no more within the nation than our county lines do now within the states. Eight, the steady advance of federal aid to and control over our educational system, leading to complete federalization of our public education. Nine, a constant hammering into the American consciousness of the horror of modern warfare. The beauties and the absolute necessity of peace. Peace always on communist terms, of course. And ten, the consequent willingness of the American people to allow the steps of appeasement by our government which amount to a piecemeal surrender of the rest of the free world and of the United States itself. In summary, gentlemen, we are losing, rapidly losing, a Cold War in which our freedom, our country, and our very existence are at stake. And while we don't seem to know we are losing this war, you can be sure the communists do. There is just one thing, only one thing in the whole world which the communists fear today. It is that despite their tremendous influence in our government and over all of our means of mass communication, the American people will wake up too soon to what has really been happening and what is now happening right under their very noses. The only thing which can possibly stop the communists is for the American people to learn the truth in time. Wow. Now, did you hear any things in there that uh, made you see, uh, that sounded familiar to you? Um, Of the ten things he gave, uh, you know, uh, greatly expand government spending. Have you seen any of that going on the last, oh, I don't know. 50 or 60 years, higher taxes. Have you noticed that? Um, I don't know what the, uh, well, the, the taxes are higher. Who doesn't know that? They, they've been, they're, they're ridiculously high now. Uh, the income tax kills everybody. Um, and then the, the unbalanced budget, we know that's going on. We know about the, the debt. And wild inflation, he said, is another way to um, to help with the, 
transformation. Remember when Barack Obama said he wanted to uh, transform the country? Um, and, and then increase government control of our lives uh, by a huge increase in bureaucracies. Do you hear a lot of discussion these days about how the uh, the bureaucrats, unelected bureaucrats, like people in this uh, in the State Department, CIA, uh, just just government people in in general, government uh, employees in general, people who aren't elected but who stay in Washington D.C. in positions of authority and power, no matter who's elected, whether it's Democrats or Republicans who are supposed to be in power, these. Um, these bureaucrats just maintain control. Um, I don't know. And I, there seems to be a lot of that going around. And this is uh, Robert Welsh. He was talking about it in 1958. 1958. Most people didn't have a color TV yet. And he was talking about this stuff. Uh, and then he said um, centralizing uh, federal government and kind of eliminating the whole idea of, you know, states here in the United States of America. That is really one of the, uh, one of the things where he really hit the bullseye. You hear people talking about, uh, eliminating the electoral college with a straight face. People like Hillary Clinton, who came with, uh, came really close to becoming president of the United States. She just wants to get rid of the electoral college. So do just, so does just about every major nationally uh, elected Democrat now doesn't want the uh, the Electoral College. They don't like this whole idea of Wyoming. Who cares about Wyoming? Why should they get a couple of votes? Why should they have anything to say about what's going on? There's nobody living there. Um, that is everywhere. Uh, the federal government just kind of throwing a blanket over the states. Uh, it's almost gotten to the point that um, you almost have to remind people that it's the, we live in the United States of America. And the states came first, and they agreed to come together, and they agreed to grant some power to a federal centralized government under certain conditions, the, the most important of which is that they maintain their sovereignty and their identity and their power. And that, how who doesn't know that, the Democrats hate the whole idea of the United States of America. You just have to listen to them. Um, and then they want to, uh, the other thing he, he said and basically predicted was education. Take over education completely. Everybody has seen what's happened there. Um, and the, uh, the teachers unions have, uh, like 95% of the money that they, they give to politics goes to Democrats. They hate the idea of school choice because the federal government wants to be in charge. Um, Jimmy Carter put in the Department of Education in the in the late seventies. There was no such thing when Robert Welsh gave his speech in nineteen fifty eight. There was no federal Department of Education. There is now, and you got somebody like Michelle Obama a few years ago telling people what their kids were going to eat for lunch at school. That's a Michelle Obama was in charge of that. Here's what's going to be on the menu. And the kids didn't eat any of it. Um, and they, the kids, I guess, ended up bringing their lunch. But it was a total failure. What they tried to do it was a, a fairly a large controversy at the time, if I remember. And looking at what she wanted on the menu, it was ridiculous. Um, 
And, of course, it, it, uh, Robert Welsh said it's also uh, dependent upon the willingness of uh, the American government to appease um, other countries and also to be involved in um, and, and turning over sovereignty to organizations like, you know, the, he mentioned the United Nations, which is, I'll never understand why we haven't kicked them out of the country uh, and why we didn't do it a long time ago. And you're hearing, you're seeing it now. One of the agencies uh, was involved in the uh, massacre in Israel on October 7th, and Donald Trump had defunded that agency. And Joe Biden, about 15 minutes after the inauguration, made sure that he refunded it. And now they're talking about defunding it again. But it's the United Nations. And um, I'm sorry, but if you elect me president, I kicked them out of the country. First of all, we're out of the United Nations, and they're out of the United States. Gone. Get them out of here. Make make some nice condos there where the United Nations building is. Um, and the one thing, by the way, that um, that Robert Welsh didn't count on, I guess nobody could have could have. It wouldn't. I guess you shouldn't blame him. I should say, for not being able to foresee the insanity of climate change hysteria. Look at how much power the federal government has gotten and is still trying to get um, by using climate change. He he mentioned threaten everybody with uh, the, the horrors of war and nuclear war, uh, and that's what he was talking about. And if you're a baby boomer, you remember uh, all the talk about what you should do if, they, if there's nuclear war. One of the things was hide under your desk. That would have done a lot of good. <laughs> that's what they actually told us to do. Listen, if you hear that the atomic bomb that liquefied uh, Hiroshima is on its way, You'll be fine. Just hide under your desk, you know, that's made out of like two inches of wood. That'll protect you. Um, but um, but the, the climate change has pretty obviously been a substitute for the fear of, I guess, nuclear war he was talking about. And, you know, the, uh, the, uh, just the annihilation of the planet. Um, and he, he didn't count on that, but if he, he, knew about climate change, if that had existed back then, if the lunatics who are out there pushing the hysteria were around back then, he definitely would have included that. But it's a good substitute for the nuclear holocaust that he might have been, uh, that, that was being used to scare and, and uh, threaten people into giving the uh, federal government more power. So uh, I'm sorry, but Robert Welsh, I, I don't know, 1958, John Birch Society, I didn't hear anything that I disagreed with there. I'll be right back. Well, speaking of uh, raving lunatics, I don't, as I said, I don't think uh, Robert Welsh was one. But it's, uh, one of those, I, I guess you could call him a raving lunatic, kind of surfaced the other day on one of the networks, um, one of the liberal networks. I can't remember if it was MSNBC or CNN, but... Remember James Carville, uh, Mr. It's the Economy Stupid, the guy who helped uh, Bill Clinton get elected and then apologized for him for the next eight years. Um, this is the, Somebody asked him what he thinks that the Democrats uh, need to do uh, to counter Donald Trump, to beat Donald Trump. Listen to this. I would tell the president and his campaign this, we got your back, dude. 
We're going after him with a meat cleaver, okay? You cannot let him up. You can't normalize him. You can't let him off the canvas. Mm -hmm. Not, not for one second. And it might not be the most fun thing to do in a campaign. It might not be what I want to be doing when I'm in my 80th year. But it's what's necessary. We don't get we don't get to do what we want to do. We get to do what we got to do, and that's where we are right now. We got to keep the foot on this guy, right on his neck. Take our heel and twist it, and never take let the it. Take heel up. and twist it. Yeah, and uh, I think it was Jen Sackey who he was on talking to, and I can't remember who she works for. One of the two, MSNBC or CNN, and she was just loving it. Just they got to put your foot on his neck and twist it. Um, and this is what they've been doing since the day he came down the escalator, not to mention the day he was inaugurated as president. But uh, that just gives you an idea of what to expect. And, of course, the Republicans should do the same thing to Joe Biden. They should just absolutely torture the guy as much as possible. But it's going to be a long 10 months, no matter what. So, um, you know, James Carville, I guess he's being brought out of the woodwork again because it's uh, an election year. He's actually kind of entertaining. We gotta, we gotta come after him with a meat cleaver. You know, that's, he's a, he's a Cajun. He's kind of funny, actually. Uh, he's a moron, but he's kind of funny. Um, so this, this is on a, not another subject, but before we get to, and by the way, my, coming up in my second half hour, I meant to mention before the break, um, 2023 was another bad year for free speech on, uh, college campuses. We'll have someone from the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. Uh, come let's come on here she uh they've been keeping score about how bad it's been not that that should surprise anybody but they kind of broke it down anyway uh we've talked here about electric vehicles and if you've been paying attention uh there's been some bad weather around the country this well not so much lately but you know a couple of weeks ago all the the zero temperatures in kansas city for the football game and all the snow uh the lake effect snow and all that stuff and uh, electric vehicles really got a bad name. People were all over the internet uh, and cable news talking about how they their their uh, vehicles were losing their range because of the cold weather, uh, having to stop at the charging stations and finding two, three, four people ahead of you, each one taking an hour to charge their car, which wouldn't hold the charge as long because of the cold weather. Well, here's something for you. <laughs> If you're riding home uh, right now in an electric vehicle, here's something for you to understand. Just keep in mind. This came out today, or I think it's when I it's when I saw it. Anyway, here you go. Last fall, engineers at Nebraska's Midwest Roadside Safety Facility—that's the University of uh, Nebraska. It's not a university, I guess. Uh, Nebraska's Midwest Roadside Safety Facility watched as an electric-powered pickup truck hurtled toward a guardrail installed on the facility's testing ground on the edge of the local municipal airport. The nearly four-ton 2022 Rivian R1T tore through the metal guardrail and hardly slowed until hitting a concrete barrier yards away on the other side. We knew it was going to be an extremely demanding test of the roadside safety system, said Cody Stoll with the facility Quote, the system was not made to handle vehicles great greater than 5,000 pounds. Are you getting this? So not only do they not last long in the cold weather uh, and, and, and lose their range, but you're going to be driving around in a car that 
will not be stopped by the guardrails and the and the and the and the, and the medial strips. I mean, the, the, you're going up the parkway, and if you bump into that wall, instead of bouncing off of it, you're going to the other side. You're going through to the other side. Um, what? Why would anybody hearing this stuff buy an electric vehicle? Um, Electric vehicles that typically weigh more than gasoline-powered cars can easily crash through steel highway guardrails that are not designed to withstand the extra force, raising concerns about the nation's roadside safety system, according to crash data released Wednesday. That was yesterday by the University of Nebraska. Yeah, climate change is a bad thing. Go buy an electric car you can't afford so you can make sure that your chances of surviving a crash are about zero. (laughs) This is just, it's beyond belief. I'll be right back. Well, everybody loves free speech as long as their speech is free. Um, Sometimes it's okay if somebody else's is not. Uh, It apparently still happens a lot on college campuses. FIRE, that's F-I-R-E, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, is all about protecting free speech on college campuses, and it has come out with its annual study. Laura Belts is policy director for FIRE, and she joins us now. Laura, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. So uh, is the arrow for free speech on college campuses uh, going up or down right now? Well, it's going down, unfortunately. We put out this report on the policies that regulate student expression every year. And this year, the percentage of schools having the most clearly restrictive policies uh, went up. And what's a red light rating? Yeah, so that's that clear and substantial restriction on free speech. That's the 20% of schools in our database earning that. And that means that They have a student policy that clearly and substantially restricts speech that would be protected under First Amendment standards. Uh, So either at a public school that's bound by the First Amendment or a private school that claims that it will be following First Amendment standards. So what would be uh, an example of a restriction? They're not they're not coming out and saying you don't we don't allow free speech, but there it's just when there are certain subjects you're not allowed to broach. Right. So they're a little more insidious than that. But um, so to give you a couple of examples, uh, there's a policy at Delaware State University that bans users of any university technology, you know, including the campus Internet, from causing offense to others and even causing embarrassment to the university. Uh, so there's quite a bit of speech that is protected under the First Amendment that could cause offense to others. Uh, so that policy restricts a good deal of protected speech. Well, who gets to decide um, what's offensive? And I guess the question, too, becomes who gets to decide whether it matters or not that I'm offended? Because some, exactly. some, some offense, some people being offended, they care about, but others they don't. Right. It's totally subjective. And, and you know, the, under First Amendment jurisprudence going back decades, the government can't limit speech just because someone has found it offensive. Yeah. So um, and what's it take to get a red light for a red light rating? So that means that the policy 
on its face, as it's written, um, it clearly and substantially restricts free speech. So no matter how it's applied, that policy um, is restrictive. So these policies are unconstitutional at public institutions, and, and they fly in the face of the free speech promises that private schools make. Is it a um, – what was your method at FIRE for um, sniffing this stuff out? How do you, How do you – you went. You checked. Uh, what is it? Four hundred eighty-nine schools. Right. So we have an online database of policies, and this can be referenced throughout the year if folks want to go online and see how a school that they're interested in is rated. But we take a look over the past year at what their policies are looking like, and we rate them um, annually. And so this report that we put out uh, is is to discuss the trends that we're seeing in that database and, and what those policies look like. Now, if I'm um, the uh, president of Delaware State and you give me a red light rating, am I, am I allowed to appeal that? As, or uh, Not that they would care that much, but is there, have you gotten pushback, I guess is what I'm asking. Yeah, so when we put out this report, um, both to educate, you know, students and alumni and folks in the public who are interested in seeing um, how their schools stack up, but we also, we don't want to just name and shame schools, we also want them to do better. Uh, so we have had the situation where administrators of schools have gotten in touch with FIRE and said, all right, you've given us a red light rating, what can we do to improve these policies? And that's exactly what we want to see uh, so that they can adopt restrictions that are aimed at the sort of misconduct they want to limit, but don't encompass free speech. How long has FIRE been around doing this? I know it was by the, the name has changed, but it's still the same concept. Right. We were founded in 1999 uh, by a University of Pennsylvania professor and a Boston area civil liberties attorney. And at that time, we were focused just on college campuses. Um, but within the past few years, we've expanded to all free speech issues across the country. Uh, we've been putting out this report since 2006. So you're not just doing schools now, colleges. What, who else would you be and investigating and reporting on. Sure. So it could be a K through 12 student, oh, okay. um, their rights. It could be someone you know, protesting in a public park um, and any kind of free speech violation across the country. And, and we're nonpartisan. So uh, really, no matter what the speech is, where it falls on the ideological or political uh, spectrum, we defend it. Now, and so if, if, um, if I feel like my, First Amendment rights are being violated. Uh, should I contact you guys? And, and then what would you do? Exactly. So go to thefire.org. We, and you can contact us and explain your case, provide any sort of documenting evidence, and then, and then we'll look into it. And then what happens, though? Well, after you look into it and you find, hey, this is, this is a First Amendment violation, what's the next step? Well, we have a number of different types of advocacy that we would pursue depending on uh, what sort of case it is, what's going on there. So it could be something like we write a letter to, say, if it's a school board that has told you that you can't speak at its meetings. Um, so we might write a letter first. We might conduct a public advocacy campaign where we're getting a lot of attention to it in the media. And, you know, worst comes to worst, we might have to litigate that case. And, and we do have litigation attorneys on staff. And, and you, the organization has been around since 1999. I would say that the Internet really became a, a major factor 
right around the middle of the 90s, 94, 95, when, when it, you know, almost everybody had some kind of a computer. So uh, is, the, is it the Internet's arrival that has made the organization FIRE necessary? I think that is a big part of it. You know, the college policies that I look at, um, the a lot of the most restrictive policies, like that one at Delaware State that I mentioned, yeah. are IT policies. And it's as if the administrators don't realize, well, the same rules apply online as they do in the in the campus uh, quad. So, so just as they can't tell students you can't uh, have an offensive protest sign, they also can't tell students they can't send an offensive email uh, because the First Amendment, it applies online too. Uh, but I also think that access to the internet has caused certain problems like students are able to um, submit anonymous complaints about other students, uh, a common policy across schools are bias reporting policies where schools have a form where they solicit complaints about biased speech. And so I think that the internet makes that sort of infringement on free expression uh, uh, all too easy. Um, and what, uh, why are private schools more likely to get a, a, a red light? So through our our study, we found that the private schools are getting are having more restrictive policies in place, and I think you'd expect to see this because you know, hey, they're not legally bound by the First Amendment like public schools as government actors are. Uh, but the vast majority of private schools that that we studied do have very clear commitments to freedom of expression in their policy handbooks. Uh, so when they promise students free speech rights they they need to actually follow through with those yeah um is it is it uh is there is there a misconception out there or a mis not a, a less than a good understanding of what the first amendment actually means um because what i see all the time is uh when when someone said that for example colin kaepernick's first amendment rights um, gave him the right to kneel at a uh, at his, an NFL game, and they couldn't they couldn't kick him off the team, or they weren't allowed to do that. And I've always felt that people have missed the concept that it's the the um, I guess it was the San Francisco 49ers at the time. They have every right to kick him off the team for kneeling during the national anthem, but it's the government that doesn't have the right to punish him for doing it. Exactly. And I, and I think you can make the kind of moral argument that, all right, even private organizations should be uh, celebrating a culture of free speech where individuals can share their views. But at the end of the day, the only people who are legally bound to respect free speech rights um, are government actors. Yeah, but you hear it all the time um, where uh, someone will be working for a network and either post a tweet or... Um, say something in public, they'll get fired, and there will be people who are supposed to be smart people saying that that person's <laughs> and, and even and and the person who maybe loses his or her job will be running around screaming about how they their First Amendment rights were violated, and it has nothing to do with the First Amendment. 
Right. And I say, I think that there are a lot of misconceptions about free speech in the First Amendment. And, and for that reason, we promote a lot of education on, on free speech topics. We encourage schools to teach their students about free speech rights, for example, because we think a lot of the conflict on campuses does arise because students don't understand the contours of their First Amendment rights. And so we have students conducting something like a sit-in that's disruptive to to campus activities, and they don't realize, well, that's not protected by the First Amendment. So I I think if colleges teach students about that during their orientation programming and really hit on that throughout their education, then students are better aware of how they can express themselves without doing something unlawful. Yeah, there are people think that you, you can stand outside of a place of business uh, with a sign that says, my boss is an idiot. <laughs> don't don't shop here or don't eat here. And he's not allowed to fire you because because you're holding a sign and you have a right to say whatever you want on the sign. There, I think right. half the people out there believe that. Yeah, at the end of the day, you might have the free speech right to do it, but there, there still may be consequences outside of you know government yeah, action yeah. against you. Yeah, you can't go on the air at a TV station or radio station and say the boss is an <laughs> idiot and then say, well, the government protects me. I'm allowed to say that. I can say my boss is an idiot. It's just it's really stupid to me. I can't believe that there are so many people who don't get it. Um, so you brought, yep. up, you brought up an interesting thing about uh, you mentioned uh, a demonstration at a school. There's been a lot of uh, demonstrating. We always have a lot of it going on, but there's especially uh, more, it seems, um, just since the uh, – with the Palestinians and and the Israelis fighting each other and the demonstrations in favor of and opposed to either side. Um, What about – this is a question, a free speech question or a First Amendment question, I guess. Um, When people are blocking traffic, you see in New York City people are sitting on the road in the – uh, and blocking an entire bridge, and uh, thousands of cars are stuck. Shouldn't they be removed by the police? Do they have a right, right. to sit there? No, they do not. So that isn't protected by the First Amendment. That's unlawful protest. And and so people might want to engage in unlawful protest, civil disobedience, to, to make a point. Certainly, civil disobedience can grab the attention of people, you know, by its disruptive nature. Uh, but, but I think um, it goes back to that civic education issue. People need to realize that if they're conducting something like a sit-in or blocking traffic, that that isn't constitutionally protected, and that they'll have to undergo that while um, realizing what the consequences will be. We're talking to Laura Belt. She is the policy director for FIRE. That's the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. Again, Laura, I'm looking at the stupidity of that stuff where I see thousands and thousands of people being put out, uh, maybe waiting for, uh, you know, uh, maybe on their way to the hospital to have a, uh, to deliver a baby, and they have to sit on the highway while these people block traffic. But you'll see cops in the vicinity, and they don't even try to remove, remove the people. Are the cops, are, are, are some government people unaware of what people's rights are when it comes to that? I mean, that very well could be. And and I mean, I think there needs to be better training on that so yeah. that the police can support lawful protests. They can make sure that people can get out and express themselves, uh, but they're, take, they're taking action against those forms of unlawful protest. Now, getting back to the schools, um, do private schools admit to holding opinions or values that can't be challenged by free speech? Like there's certain right. things so you just can't, are, you're not allowed to say? 
Yeah, there are some private schools that do make clear consistently through their policies that they have certain values that override free speech. And that's entirely fair. They're private associations. They have a First Amendment right to set their own values and to say, well, free speech is going to be subject to them. And so in our report, we set those schools aside uh, because and we label them as warning schools because we want students to at least know if you sign up to go to this school, you won't have free speech rights like public school students, um, just so that they're aware of that. So so a, a common example of this is, is BYU. In their policies, they are crystal clear that that students will be subject to the various uh, values and teachings of the LDS Church and that expression is going to come second to that. Uh, So we just want to make sure students are aware of that before they enroll. Yeah, I was going to I was going to bring up uh, like a Catholic school um, that might not want you to uh, promote uh, abortion rights and that that's sorry, we just don't do that here. Exactly, exactly. So I, I think it's just best for schools to be consistent and clear about that, you know, put that in their policies so that students are aware. Can a uh, claim of a microaggression cancel out free speech in some cases? Well, it depends. I mean, if the microaggression actually rises to the level of an exception to the First Amendment, it could. So if it's a part of, you know, a threat or or incitement to violence or harassment, but a single microaggression on its own, that's probably protected speech. That's that's another new term also. I don't think that was around in 1999 when you guys went into business. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, exactly. And and um, what about bias uh, reporting policies? That seems to come with uh, harassment and uh, sexual assault, things like that. Exactly. So these policies, they solicit these reports of any sort of speech or action that uh, seems to uh, come out of bias towards a particular protected characteristic. And so some of these reports, they might be conduct that isn't protected by the First Amendment, like harassment, discrimination. Uh, But these systems are often, the forms are often so broadly construed that they include just about anything. So an unwelcome joke about somebody's personal characteristic, a microaggression, and these things are protected speech. So so we're concerned that it creates this sort of big brother chilling effect where students are worried um, if I express myself about a controversial topic, I might be reported to the university and investigated for it. Um, I'm out of time, but can you give us uh, how to how, where people can uh, go if they want to maybe check their school to see how it did in the uh, in the study? Sure thing. So they can go to thefire.org/spotlight, and you can find this report as well as um, all the schools that were in the report, all the policies that were flagged there. Well, I'm I'm uh, glad you're out there doing that, uh, Laura. I'm glad you were able to come on the show and talk about it. Thanks again for having me. Okay, thank you very much. That's Laura Belts, uh, Policy Director for the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. I'll be right back. Hey, we have time to uh, congratulate Sadie Schreiner. Uh, First place finish for Sadie in the women's 200 and 300 meter races. Racing for RIT, that's uh, Rochester Institute of Technology, broke two school records uh, on Friday and um, finished the 300-meter race uh, more than two seconds 
uh, faster than the next fitness than the second place runner. And, uh, she, uh, she won the uh, 200 meter race with, by one second. And according to uh, RIT, Sadie, uh, is going to have an Atlantic region championship qualifying time. That's that, that's, that's what came uh, out from that race. So it was a big day for Sadie. Um, my problem is, uh, is that, uh, well, uh, you know, uh, Sadie's a man, okay? <laughs> yeah, what is his name? Camden. Camden's, it's not say, it's, well, Camden says his name is Sadie now, uh, but it was Camden Schreiner. Uh, his time would have placed him, uh, 18th in the men's 200 meter race and in 10th, in 10th place in the men's 300 uh, meter race. Uh, and he also competed on December 8th last year at a track meet at Nazareth University and won first place there and set the record. That's the record, 41.80 in the women's meter race. So are you getting this? Just so you know, and this is something that's said with a straight face and accepted, that a man now holds, <laughs> this is just, I don't know, we talk about it all the time, and it's out there every day, and you'd think it would, it, at some point it would just say, okay, that's the way it is. It's just so stupid and ridiculous that I'm sitting here telling you that a man, a man, a human being with a penis, a man, is now the women's record, hold, record holder in these races at Rochester Institute of Technology. Now, here's the other thing. RIT, I think you got to be pretty smart to go there. And they put up with this. And, of course, going to get right back to what I've been saying all along, and it's not going to change. I have no sympathy for the women who finished behind him. All they had to do, as soon as they see that he's a man, leave. That's the only solution, and it's a simple solution. But in the meantime, congratulations to Sadie Schreiner. Oh, boy, I'll talk to you tomorrow. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 